1: That's IrishTimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, April the 5th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Why do we hear so often that politics has failed? Or indeed, why is politics itself often seen as a negative or a pejorative term? Is it in the nature of political power that, like political careers, it always ends in failure? Or are the systems that we've constructed for running our societies just a bit outdated or simply not fit for purpose? And what role does our own personal behaviour play, along with the competing interests of differing social groups, to prevent us from achieving the sort of goals which most of us claim or declare that we want to see, like building a fairer, safer society for everyone? All of these questions and many more are addressed in Why Does Politics Fail?, a new book by Oxford University political scientist, Ben Ansell, who joins me today. Hello, Ben. Thank Thank you very much for having me here, Hugh. The implication in your title, as I read it, is that there's a there's a general feeling around that politics might be failing right now. Is that fair?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really pervasive view. Uh, you know, not just in Ireland but in the United Kingdom and the United States and, and so on. And you know, the the aim of this book uh, is is to talk about, as the book's title says, why why politics fails. And, uh, but it's to do so with five big questions five big things that i think most of us nonetheless agree on like well, why do we think politics is failing well presumably it's stopping us to get to uh stopping us from getting to outcomes that we want and so those big five outcomes in in the book just so that your listeners know uh, how the book is structured are democracy equality solidarity security and prosperity and i think you know broadly we'd, we'd all like to govern ourselves we wouldn't want to live in a really unequal world. We all want someone to look after us when we're sick. We want to be safe and we want to be wealthy enough. But the, the question is, you know, why is it so hard for our political systems to get there? And, and that's the core question in the book about why politics fails. Uh, and as you'll see, if, if you read the book, you know, the big answer is ultimately the reason politics fails is not just because of politicians, it's because of us. It's because each of us is self-interested, we, we try and do what's best for us in particular situations. But the, the sum of all of our individual behaviours, unfortunately, ends up making things worse for us. So our, we fail to reach those collective outcomes because our individual self-interest keeps on getting, getting in the way.
1: So those five traps or five paradoxes you describe, you seem to run up again and again against this, I think, very natural human instinct, which people often describe in terms of being the prisoner's uh, dilemma or the kind of paradox of collective action or the tragedy of the commons. This tension between the individual human instinct to Get what we can as soon as we can for our own good, and doing something for the betterment of society that's more long term that may actually benefit us, in the, us all in the long term.
0: Yeah, that's that's really the overall theme of the book. And you, and if if you read it, you'll see the tragedy of the commons, the collective action problem, and so on come up again and again. Ultimately, this is the tragedy of being a being a human, uh, which is that. We find ourselves all the time in situations where what's good for us and what's good for other people don't always align. Uh, In the book, um, I talk about these classic examples of the tragedies of the commons when Britain and Iceland almost got into a war in the 1950s fishing for cod. Uh, and the problem there was that the I- Icelanders kept expanding their fishing zone and getting mad at British fishermen in it. And neither of them could monitor one another. Right? The, the high sea is very, very hard to observe, to punish people from fishing. So everybody just kept on fishing until the North Sea cod ran out at the end. Right? These types of problems are endemic. Um and the argument I make in the book is that they happen because we are all inevitably self-interested, and, and that it's not a moral statement. Right? I don't think everybody's bad; uh, that we're all immoral, and somehow, if only we saw the light, we could do better. I think this is a, a basic problem that it's very hard for us to do things that aren't in our individual self-interest, and to constrain ourselves when our interests clash, unless somebody's going to knock heads together. And in political life, there's not always somebody who can knock our heads together to make that happen.
1: So are people dishonest with themselves or are they playing sort of psychological tricks upon themselves when, I mean, I know you work a lot with opinion polls, for example, so that they say that there are these, you know, things for the greater good, better health service, more money for climate action, whatever it might be. And they say that, but they don't maybe entirely mean it.
0: Yeah, that's right. So I began my academic career looking at the politics of education, and education is the classic example of a policy that almost everybody says they want the government to spend more money on. Um, and yet actually, in most countries, uh, teachers are underpaid and classrooms are bare, and teachers go going to have to go and buy stationery for their students. So, you know, how can these two things come together? Well, part of it, of course, is that people don't want to pay the taxes for education. And the other thing is people may say they want more education spending because it sounds nice. and Nobody wants to be the person claiming that they don't want education spending. And indeed, in the polls I looked at, that's normally only about 5% of people, which is, you know, the amount of people who you normally claim to have seen UFOs, right? So this is a really Really niche view uh, that people have. Uh, But not everybody clearly is willing to actually pay the taxes to bear the costs to get the benefits of education. They say they want education because they'd like it in general, but they'd like other people to pay for it. They say they want education because it sounds bad to interviewers uh, when you say, I don't want more money on education. But again, when the rubber meets the road, people aren't willing to pay. And, And so the book as a whole is a bit of an exercise in political therapy. When you go to a therapist, they ask you to think about the ways in which you behave that end up being sort of pathological for yourself, that end up pushing you away from the life that you want to live. And the whole point of therapy is for you to understand why you keep doing things like that. I would like people who read this book to understand why we all make these mistakes all the time, because only by understanding them and recognising them rather than denying them and claiming that, you know, we're great people, it's just the other people who aren't, only in that way, I think, can we get to grips with some of the reasons why politics fails.
1: I suppose like all forms of therapy, when you start digging into it, things are more complicated than they might appear on the surface. Uh, you know, there's a traditional model in relation to this stuff, which is that the more money you have, the less you think there should be taxation. And the less money you have, the more taxation you think should be. And that's obviously based on a pretty pretty crude form of self-interest. But that plays out in a much more complex way in in modern societies. And in fact, with the increasing breaking down of the traditional left-right divide, where the working class voted left and the middle class voted right, uh, it doesn't necessarily work that way anymore. No, it, it doesn't always. Uh, I think we've seen a, a shifting of the political axes
0: in lots of countries over the last 10 uh, to 15 years. I mean, that's really, really obvious in the United Kingdom. Let me give you an example from my own research here. It used to be that the 100 constituencies with the lowest house prices uh, in the United Kingdom all voted for Labour. And something like 80% of the 50 richest ones voted Conservative. So a really, really strong relationship between income and voting. And in 2019, there was no relationship at all. It's just kind of, if you put it on a graph, it's just a big blob. Uh, And so you know, that suggests that, look, people are complicated, and I sometimes call this the Richard Ashcroft theory of politics, that we're a million different people from one day to the next. Right? So self-interest isn't just about the money you have. So if we think about, you know, why did the axis of politics change in the United Kingdom? You know, that's in part because Boris Johnson and Michael Gove shifted uh, in a very politically clever way the, the axis on which uh, politics had been fought, to this new dimension where people who felt that they'd been left out of the debate and, and probably had been left out of the debate for 20 or 30 years, suddenly found a voice. right? So by making national sovereignty and Brexit this really germane, salient thing, they were able to turn British politics so that they could split the country in half and, and get the bigger side, as Pat Buchanan famously said about Republican politics in the States. Right? So... Is that self-interest? Well, uh, yes, to a degree, right? So it's true that some of the people who voted for Brexit might ultimately have been worse materially off by that, but if they felt they'd been excluded from the political system and no one had listened to them for a huge period of time, then surely it's self-interested to say, actually, I would like politicians to listen to me, right? And that's how we ended up with a levelling up agenda and so forth. So self-interest is complex, um, but it's always best to think about the situation in which people are in and, and and uh, the series, the panoply of things that might drive them to vote, you know, not just the money alone.
1: So I, I'm, I'm still... Uh... Coping with the fact that we've uh, used a Britpop classic by The Verve to uh, to explain contemporary <laughs> contemporary British contemporary British politics, but then I wonder how does that fit into your into your five traps? How do impulses like nationalism, for example, and that's one way of seeing Brexit, yeah. is as is is as a form of of, of nationalism. Uh, and nationalism is a very potent, powerful force for, for people. Sometimes it's driven by self interest. You know, the Irish didn't want to be exploited by the by the British anymore, and we we became independent. Um, but it. It's often driven by more different kinds of impulses, sometimes described pejoratively as being atavistic or nativist. Which of those five areas does does, does that fit into? So... It
0: it sort of fits into two in in the book, I think, most cleanly. Uh, In the democracy chapter, I talk about this democracy trap, and each chapter has a trap that explains how self-interest overrides our collective goals. So in that trap, there's this trade-off between chaos, on the one hand, where no one can decide on anything, and polarisation on the other. And so, generally speaking, you end up with polarisation when politics falls onto a single dimension, and you're either on one side of it or you're not. Chaos happens when there are lots of different things that drives people's behaviour. And that's why Brexit became so hard to resolve in the United Kingdom, because there were lots of moving parts. Right, There was both the economic effects of Brexit, but also the sovereignty effects of Brexit. And politicians even couldn't, as you know, there's a chapter in the book where I talk about my own experience of trying to come up with a voting rule that would, ho, 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 help to solve Brexit for parliamentarians. But they weren't able to find that because they weren't simply split on a simple left-right dimension. Everybody wanted different things and everybody misrepresented what they want. So... You know, firstly, I think when nationalism is important and it becomes more or less salient at different points, it complicates politics. And it means that we can get these kind of shifting patterns. Uh, You know, another example on this is in Belgium about a decade ago, they weren't able to form a government for an entire year. And one of the reasons they weren't is because there were splits between socialist and right wing parties. But there were also splits between people who wanted uh Flanders to split off from the rest of Belgium and Wallonia to split off again from the rest of the Belgium and so with all of these different forces uh cycling around they weren't able to even get enough parties to coalesce to form a government so that's one way in which it happens in, in the book the other way in which nationalism matters is is potentially more positive and that's in the chapter on solidarity which is uh essentially wanting people to look after us in, in hard times right so think of the aspects of the welfare state from healthcare to pensions to unemployment insurance and there nationalism plays a really interesting role because solidarity is really about defining who is us. right? Who are the people we want to give solidarity to? And as I say, the trap in the book is we only want solidarity when we can get it for ourselves. But the question is, who is us? Right? Uh, nationalism, as we saw at the end of the Second World War, for example, right, where there have been these great moments of nationalism, uh, often led to the emergence of the modern welfare state. Right? Arguably, we wouldn't have had the NHS in the United Kingdom without the Second World War bringing together a national community. But on the other hand, in the United Kingdom today, most of our debates about the NHS have been how to exclude foreigners. Right? So initially it was stopping health tourism. And then it was making immigrants to the United Kingdom pay an NHS fee. Right? So then it's all about narrowing who gets it. And so nationalism can help us bind everybody together. I mean, arguably the Scottish National Party have been really successful at doing that, uh, becoming a more kind of centre-left party than they used to be, binding everybody into this solidaristic Scotland. But it can also be exclusionary, as of course it is to some degree for the Scottish National Party with the rest of the United Kingdom.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that strikes me about the Scottish National Party, and this can be often be the case with national projects, is that they, unlike what we call old school ideological political parties, they claim to speak for the whole nation, the single voice of the nation. And that can create its own difficulties, both for the parties themselves, as we've seen, I think, in the, in the recent SNP uh, leadership contest, and for a vibrant democracy. Because if one party is too big or claims to speak for the whole nation, that's not necessarily a good thing.
0: Right. Well, quite. And so the democracy chapter in the book is, has the trap. There's no such thing as the will of the people. Uh, and I think this is one thing that most political scientists agree on. There's only a will of the people in the most kind of mundane beauty contest case where we all absolutely categorically agree on the same thing. And unfortunately, most of politics doesn't look like that. So... Uh, the, the trend towards populism that we've seen, you know, I would be careful about calling the Scottish National Party a populist party, but there is a dimension of that, right? About forming an idea of an individual people who are being stopped from doing something by someone else. That can hold people together for a while, but ultimately it's a glossing over of the real cracks that exist in every political system. And ultimately it's hard to sustain for longer than about a decade, as I think the SNP are discovering themselves today. So... To give you a really extreme example of what happens if you do try and make everybody agree, there's an example in the book I give of what happened in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, uh, which uh, was in in the area of, as as you've guessed, Poland and Lithuania in the 17th and 18th century. And in that country at the time, in Parliament, anyone could stand up and exercise what was called the liberum veto, which means I freely oppose. You get up and you could say, I want to stop all debate right now because I disagree. And then all debate would have to be stopped. And so years and years went by when no decisions could be made in that parliament at all. And uh, clever and ill-meaning politicians from neighbouring Prussia and Russia figured out that this was happening and they started buying off those Polish parliamentarians to exercise the veto to prevent anything from happening. And sooner or later, you got the partition of Poland between those two countries. So in other words, if you try and make everybody absolutely agree... Sometimes you can end up you know, having politics completely fail because nothing can, get hap- nothing can get done at all. So ultimately, I don't think we should, we should want everybody to agree. What we need to do is instead of assuming that there is a people and getting mad that there isn't one and we don't all agree, we need to find ways of channeling our discontent, channeling our disagreement more effectively.
1: The the, the Polish Lithuanian example is kind of fascinating, and I do wonder about it. How much of it was that that simple systemic flaw in the in their system, how much of it was about the natural change in the geopolitics of Central Europe in the well, in the in the sixteenth and seventeenth century? So I mean, but, but 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 I draw a comparison between that and some of the things that we see, for example, in the United States today. And when I see those things, like I say to myself, this is a system that is almost built. Built to fail. I mean, I'm looking, I was up first thing this morning and I was looking at this rather obscure but very consequential election to the, to the Supreme Court in Wisconsin, which without going into too much detail on it, can have really quite significant implications for, um, for national US politics over the next few years. And here you have a system which is incredibly polarised, highly gerrymandered, uh, an extremely politicised judiciary, all things, all symptoms of a political system which is in ill health, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean that's absolutely right. And, and what's happening in Wisconsin, as you say, will be extremely important if Wisconsin has a close election and the Supreme Court in Wisconsin has to decide where their electoral votes go uh, in 2024. So maybe perhaps more important than Donald Trump's uh, um, arrest uh, in terms of how things play out. The American political system is is deeply challenging to think about how how you would improve it, and it, it has the combination of both of the both of the endpoints of the democracy trap that I talk about in the book between chaos on the one hand, where no one can decide on anything and nothing happens, and polarisation on the other, where things can happen, but you get this kind of scorched earth politics and, you know, losers often end up being crushed by the winners. Uh, So presidential politics looks like polarisation. And if you look at Congress, uh, and the, you know, the voting behaviour and the ideological record of senators, and congressional representatives over the last 50 years it's definitely become more polarized right so americans hate each other more but also nothing can get done in america because they have all of these countervailing institutions right this is it was in part designed by the founding fathers right madison famously said you know that you know if men were angels we we wouldn't need all of these political institutions to to stop them from from um, from crushing one another but we do uh, and so the courts and the various uh you know the house and the senate and the presidency are all set set up against one another and so we have this horrible mixture of polarization and gridlock in the united states which we'll see uh again if we have another of these debt ceiling crises and i talk about the debt ceiling crises under president obama in the book where the u.s almost defaults on its national debt on a regular basis because the House and the presidency are polarized, they want different things, but
1: no one can force anything through until the markets scream. And is that not, does that not benefit the conservative side rather than what would be described as the progressive or liberal side in the United States? Because if you're a fan of small government, well, the next best thing is a frozen government.
0: Yeah, so gridlock is good for the status quo, right? So in a country with a very small welfare state uh, and you know, pretty conservative politics like the United States, it's good for conservatives. If you are uh, in continental Europe, you might disagree with that. You might say, well, wait a second, these proportional representation systems where the mushy middle is always in power means that we never have... Fundamental changes to the welfare compact that we came up with in the 50s and 60s, uh, when people, you know, on average died in their 70s, uh, and when we created all of these generous pensions, right? So this is the, the pickle the Macron is in right now, right? The French have a pretty early retirement age, at least by kind of Anglo Irish American standards. Uh, but there, are, but there are strikes on the streets of France to, you know, to push it up to 64 years of age. So there, in continental Europe, the I suppose the status quo that dominates is this very generous welfare system, and in the states, it's you know a system where you know still many many people don't have access to health insurance.
1: And yet, in both systems, and it seems to me that that some of these factors operate regardless of systems, whether it's P.R., whether it's first past the post, whether it's you know all the checks and balances in the United States, as you say, are a much more you know powerful presidency in France, again and again, you kind of come back to certain tensions and certain conflicts. And one at the moment seems to be um, a, a populist revolt against a system which is, which is seen not to be delivering or not to be capable of delivering change, um, whether that's in the United States or whether it's in, whether it's in France.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, that's right. And clearly, over the last 15 years, we've seen um, an enormous amount of discontent with I think what would be fair to characterize as a kind of self-serving technocratic way of running government that was very predominant in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I, you know, I, I was a civil servant at the Treasury in 2004 to six, So in a way, I was part of that technocracy. And I think one of the mistakes that the governments and bureaucracies of the era made was to try and squeeze politics out was to essentially ignore people in declining areas who were not benefiting from globalisation and saying, look at the statistics. <laughs> we're going to run the country in this way because the growth will be good on the whole and too bad for you. In other words, they were trying to squeeze political discontent out. And it turned out that there were a lot of losers uh, who didn't feel that they were being adequately compensated. And the importance of politics, and I think why we can't ignore it, and, and the plea I make in the book not to ignore politics... Uh, is that ultimately, if you try and squeeze it out in one place, it will rise up in another. And, you know, those very same kind of um, uh, masters of the universe from the late 90s, early 2000s, the politicians and bureaucrats ultimately had to deal with Trump, deal with Brexit, deal with populist revolts in Greece, populist revolts in France and Germany and so forth, that had been bubbling underneath all the time and that people had largely been ignoring.
1: So I I do wonder where we're at now. I don't want to blame Francis Fukuyama. He gets blamed far too much for declaring, (laughs) prematurely declaring the end of history. But actually, I think to be fair to him, I think he did predict that we were into a, a new era, which would have very different kinds of Post-Cold, post-Cold War challenges. And as you say, that technocratic moment of Clinton and Blair in the 90s and the and the noughties, up, up until the financial crash, I suppose, um, that was the world in which, you know, many of us grew up and had our early adult lives. And it it, it has kind of collapsed. And I'm not, uh, we seem at the moment now to be in a moment of flux, chaos, maybe. It's very unsure where the populist revolt goes from here in, in democratic countries.
0: Yeah, one way of thinking about this would be to say, you know, talk about this quite a bit in the book, in both in the chapters on democracy and equality, that living in a capitalist democracy is living in in an oxymoron, is living in a world where wealth accumulates to them that has, but democratic voting is equal. Uh, And similarly, living in a liberal democracy also feels slightly oxymoronic, because liberalism, yes, in part is about political freedoms, but is also about protecting minorities from majority decisions. And so if you like, the kind of liberal and capitalist elements of this were the winners of the 90s and 2000s. And I think the last decade has, has seen a kind of majoritarian victory of, of you know, thin majorities of the mass who felt discontented over the last 10 years winning out. But it's a back and forth, right? We're sort of careening between one and the other. Um, I think that the more pessimistic message of the book is that's what we should expect, right? So to the degree that Fukuyama was right, his His argument was that liberal democracy is the end point, but liberal democracy doesn 't mean that there aren 't differences between people or that we aren 't going to have sort of swings between between protecting minorities and protecting property rights on the one hand and you know uh, the populist will on the other. It just means it 's going to be contained within uh, within a democratic framework, and so what what I would say is i don 't fear for the United States or the United Kingdom or Ireland indeed remaining as democracies. I just think that perhaps we started thinking that there weren't these disagreements, that there wouldn't be these challenges, that there wouldn't be this polarization in the 1990s. And we were wrong about that. People will always disagree. And that's what being human is. And that's okay as long as you don't pretend it doesn't happen, as long as
1: you don't pretend it's not existing. And yet, listening to what you were saying earlier about being an advisor to the unsuccessful attempt to come to some kind of a resolution of the Brexit crisis in the months leading up to the uh, to the 2019 election, and you describe it as, you know, the axes did not align with the parties, you know, um, r- remain and leave and, and Conservative and, and, and Labour. And in a way that was resolved by Boris Johnson's thumping victory in the in the 2019 general election, whatever you may think um, of boris johnson but the axes are still there in what you're just describing you know those and, and the parties are still not aligned and it seems to me um that in a first past the post system like in the uk it's particularly difficult to realign them and they they've just been buried for the moment as opposed to being fully resolved
0: yeah i think that's right so in the book i describe this as going from chaos where you can't make any decision at all back to polarization again with boris uh in, in a way Brexit sort of was the first moment of polarisation in 2016 but we had a clear decision that was great the problem was how to do it that led to chaos so we went back to get Brexit done a decision was made right so we weren't going to have another referendum and we weren't going to you know, revoke Article 50 and so on <laughs> So we had a clear decision for a while until, of course, we had to try and do Brexit again. And that's led to all of the kerfuffle of the last few years. And ultimately, you know, probably the the first moment of any kind of agreement at all was the Windsor Framework, you know, just essentially a few days ago under Sunat, where it's taken that long to get to this point. Uh, So I think we are still veering in the United Kingdom between chaos and polarisation unless our parties all fully align around Brexit. Uh, then it's going to be very hard to resolve that. But even then, within the parties, there's still some disagreement about what that might mean, right, including the Conservative Party. So one way I've been describing political parties and I think what they're useful for and why people shouldn't want to throw them out is in the absence of party discipline, like we saw at the beginning of 2019 in Westminster, there's just total chaos. No one can make their mind up. John Burko is running the country for a while. That doesn't work out that brilliantly either. So parties, you can think of as they are chaos cages, right? They take the chaos that we have and then they they smush it down and they say to everybody in the party, look, look whatever your disagreements, we all have to follow the same line, right? So to some degree Boris Johnson was successful at that in 2019 until he became an untenable figure and then the Conservative Party just dissolved into chaos again, right? And we had this weird moment that looked like a cardiograph gone wrong in terms of approval ratings where Liz Truss appears the whole thing collapses and then we just reboot again. So... You know, the Conservative Party clearly hasn't been managing its internal chaos very effectively but but I think you know parties really ought to be doing that and if a party system isn't functioning to, to fit people's disagreements then ultimately new parties will emerge and we've seen that in Ireland with the rise of Sinn Fein arguably.
1: yeah I mean I mean obviously now in the UK you have a moment where you know the boring technocrats have returned from the 1990s and they have reassert mind you they were less boring in the 90s weren't they but certainly Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer kind of filled, filled that filled that gap for the moment but they're still left to up these parties which are very different from what they used to be. So the Labour Party was rooted in a trade union movement which has been decimated probably over the last 30 years or so. The the Conservative Party used to be a party of hundreds of thousands in the shires and now it's tens of thousands in perhaps slightly different parts parts of the country. So maybe they're not quite such stable carriers of the, of the system as they used to be. Yeah, so a really key aspect of the book is talking about the
0: importance of of institutions, so of uh, kind of organisations and rules uh, that we come up with to manage our political disagreements, to to embed what I call in the book, the political promises that we make to one another. And those aren't just formal institutions of government. Those are also the informal institutions like trade unions and indeed churches. And those played a really, really important role in British politics over the course of the middle of the 20th century in intermediating between voters and parties and helping Workers understand their collective interests in the case of the Labour Party, but you also in helping you know, people in the leafy shires, the, the Anglican church probably played an important role as a meeting point, as a place for people to make agreements about you know, how they wanted the country to be run for the Conservative Party. That's certainly true across Europe as well. So the decline of the unions, the decline of the church has n- meant a more atomised world where individual voters face off against parties. And voters, as I, as I show in the book, you know, going back to my Richard Ashcroft line, right they have a lot of different and often incoherent views, right, so we all have our self interest but they don 't necessarily line up into a great policy program and The job of parties is to make sense of them but it 's much easier to do so if you have trade unions speaking directly to people or if you have the local vicar speaking directly to people than a world of you know people tweeting at their minister. Uh, online or you know sending angry letters into parliament there's there's so much more distance now between between parties and voters and i think you know that actually both increases chaos and polarization because it doesn't give people the space to come to an understanding of of what they want for society and what the trade-offs really are
1: so we have um, a, a decline in those in those civic institutions, which don't necessarily have a constitution or a legal role in the society, but as you say, have a very important kind of you know binding effect, and, and they are in decline. And kind of in parallel with that, it seems to me you have something which is broadly called norms, which are things which may not be embedded in law um, or in a written constitution in the in the case of the United Kingdom, but which are a very important glue that kind of keep things together. And one aspect of the of the, the populist revolt, it seems to me, is a rejection of norms at times. That's almost a kind of a that's a that's a brand proposition, certainly in, in the case of in the case of in the case of Donald Donald Trump. So I just wonder where that's you know, all likely to leave us in the future. Well, I, I mean, I think for most social scientists, the, the key norm, the key kind of pattern of
0: behavior that we think is important is trust in one another and trust in government. Uh, and you might trust somebody because they're lying to you. Sorry, you might mistrust somebody because they're lying to you. Or you might mistrust somebody because they're incompetent. Right? But for either reason, trust is going to be important. You know, can you trust that when people make you promises, both people around you and, and, and parties, that they'll be able to follow through? And you're right to say that the populist brand has been to say, not just trust us, because it's not so much. That, it's more like don't trust anyone and don't trust government. And then there is this kind of secondary, and I'm the only person who's telling it like it is. But it's not clear to me about whether, whether Donald Trump even is arguing that people should trust him. It's just that they shouldn't trust anybody else. Right? Now, that's the message. And I think that does make it very, very hard uh, to have functioning government. So to give one example I talk about uh, in the security chapter in the book, which opens with the COVID lockdowns and and the sort of different balance between kind of anarchy you saw in places like South Dakota that barely enforced any rules at all and had motorcycle rallies during COVID, and then the kind of tyranny of being locked up in your apartment in China. You know, for the rest of us, most of us had varying degrees of government lockdown. Uh, But it turned out across Europe, those lockdowns were much less abided by so so people moved around a lot more in places that had traditions of voting for populist parties so that's actually true in the uk the areas that voted for brexit had less social distancing than those that voted remain but it's also true across scandinavian countries and it's true, true across europe as a whole And I think that boils down to a lower level of trust in government that we associate with with populists that made it harder for governments then to enforce something where you really, really needed people to
1: trust you and behave. Because you couldn't possibly monitor everybody all the time during the COVID lockdowns. The the idea that you not only can't trust your government, but you can't trust anyone at all is a very powerful idea that does have roots in... Totalitarian, totalitarian movements of earlier periods, and we've also seen it in, in books about, about Putin's Russia as well. I see it in the writings of, of Hannah Arendt. The idea that if everybody's lying, well, I, all I can do is pick my liar. It's a powerful political yeah. proposition.
0: No, it is, and and it's one of the um, ways in which autocracies is most effectively governed, is by having everybody misrepresent their preferences all the time. Right, So nobody can really say what they're thinking in highly authoritarian systems. And and that leads to, it it makes it easier in one way to repress your population, right? Because if if people aren't willing to actively say, I don't support the government, I am, um, you know, willing to revolt, then obviously that's great if you're an authoritarian trying to stop any incipient revolt. But it's really problematic, and I talk about this quite a bit in the book, in terms of actually getting your economy to function because if everybody's incentive is to lie then you know the guy running the shoe factory uh will claim that he's able to make enough shoes even as as he runs out of leather and has to you know sort of start cobbling together shoes from materials lying around the side the the soviet union had real difficulties with people misrepresenting production targets and what they were able to achieve because they were so scared of being punished so In really, really low trust systems where you can't punish anyone, eventually it stops being functional for dictatorships even. Um, But as a core theme of the book, if it's in people's self-interest to misrepresent, they will. And that leads to collective action problems, even for dictatorships. Right, So now they can't do what they want, even though they really ought to be able to control
1: everything yeah and it, it generally leads to unsuccessful societies doesn't it? I think you mentioned southern Italy and the you know the level of the level of tax evasion in in, in regions of southern italy and you know it's not it's not exactly a, an economic powerhouse southern italy
0: no exactly and it's been a been a huge problem in in the, the south of Italy for a very, very long time. But I talk a little bit about book in the book and it's really a bizarre example of buffalo mozzarella uh, because it's very, very hard for you or I when we bite into buffalo mozzarella to tell if it really was a water buffalo or if it's a cow. Uh, and water buffalo, uh, buffalo mozzarella, those water buffalo live in the swamps around Naples, which <laughs> along with Sicily is not the kind of place with, with incredibly high levels of trust. And so it was very, very hard to stop adulteration of buffalo and mozzarella for these italian firms so they had to come up with all kinds of complicated ways of sort of punishing people who adulterated their milk or new labelling schemes in order to be able to deal with this right? so it happens in the most boring things like in your supermarket these collective action problems where if there's low trust, people will try and get away with what they can. You know, that's why we have that's why we have regions of origin and dock and all these these things on our food in the supermarket, right, is to resolve the fact that we can't trust each other. And so it's really endemic, it's endemic to things
1: you eat, as well as when you go out to vote. I suppose the other side of that is that we live in a Unbelievably complex society now. Um, you refer to Thomas Hobbes' famous book *Leviathan*, which I think informs any kind of thinking about the state. And I was talking a couple of months ago to the political scientist David Runciman about about Hobbes and and *Leviathan*. And his his position is that um, this massive entity, which was conceived of uh, by Hobbes four hundred years or so ago, is now so much bigger than he could ever have imagined. The state is massive. It's complex. It's it's impossible to understand. It's sort of opaque to us. We have accumulated all these laws and regulations and government departments for very good reason to make our lives safer and better in all kinds of ways. But the machine has got so big that the question arises of, you know, who's running it and how do you run it?
0: Yeah, the book shows a dance really um, between needing institutions to, to set the rules and expectations we have for each other, right? Because, you know, one thing is is not symptomatic of Naples or Palermo, and that's a big Leviathan institutional state, right? So that's what happens when you don't have enough then people don't trust one another. But the danger is if you go fully in the opposite direction, you end up with layering institution upon institution, each of which might have made sense at the time, but becomes increasingly less fit for purpose. So in the book, I talk about this as, you know, an institution is a promise made at a particular point in time that then gets fossilized, right? And so we have this fossil sort of guiding us over time. And of course, as as the, the eras pass, that fossil looks less like the problems that we currently have now. And so all all the time, we have to make a decision about does this institution still work or not? And I think in uh, many functioning liberal democracies, we have institution upon institution. It's really unclear whether people can ever change them or or which ones of these function and which ones don't. So to give you the obvious example... Keir Starmer has promised to reform or abolish the House of Lords in the United Kingdom. Right? Well, I, It's very, very hard to come up with a, a clear, efficient justification for having a whole bunch of hereditary peers and then friends of Tony, Dave, Boris, Teresa and so on governing the United Kingdom. But the House of Lords also, its main role is to slow things down. Right? So if you're going to replace it with an elected second chamber... Now you have a new institution that might say, well, I don't want to just slow things down. I've been elected, right? I should have a say too. So all the time we're in this dance between the old institution is dysfunctional, but what new problems will we create with new institutions? Will those resolve the problems that we have? And just to point to one other quick example in this, the filibuster in the US Senate, which I talk about in the introduction of the book, the Senate has 100 senators, so theoretically 50 plus the vice president ought to be able to pass laws. But many, many um, decisions have to be made by a supermajority of 60 senators. That's the filibuster rule that came about in the 1970s in its, in its modern form. And during the period in which President Obama was the president uh, and the Republicans had a minority in the Senate, they kept invoking the filibuster to block his executive orders and to stop him from appointing judges. So the Democrats said, let's get rid of this for executive orders and all judges except Supreme Court judges. So they did that. The Republicans still blocked, by the way, Obama's uh, Merrick Garland, his nominee for Supreme Court for a full year. And then when the Republicans in 2016 won the House presidency and Senate, they got rid of the filibuster for everything. They put in three Supreme Court justices to their own uh, preferences. And then they removed Roe v. Wade uh, in 2022, even once the presidency had turned back. Right? So the Democrats had been furious at the Republicans for obstructing but by getting rid of the institution, they ultimately ended up with an outcome that they really didn't want, which was the end of Roe versus Wade. So it's a be careful what you wish for story often. Uh, and that balance that we have to strike between getting the right institutions but not just clearing out the old ones that's an, a big political problem to which there is no perfect answer, but that we need to take seriously.
1: Because there is a critique out there on what you might call the libertarian or sometimes the far right. Um, in the United States, for example, there's a sort of technotopian point of view from from Silicon Valley that democracy, you know, needs to be rebooted, democracy 2.0 or whatever it might be, which isn't necessarily very democratic at all. I, I, I don't find their IP, ideas remotely appealing. But there is a sense that in the age of the, you know in the in the age of the internet, uh, a set of ideas conceived somewhere between the mid-18th and mid-19th century just, just don't work anymore.
0: Well, no, quite. I mean, and in a way, if you're in a company that, you know, moves fast and breaks things, it can be very frustrating when the political system is unable to do that. Of course, the things that get broken by politicians are typically other voters who didn't vote for the party, right? So that, that's why it doesn't happen. Um, I, I suppose you know one way to think about this would be to say look the technologies that we have could improve our democracy but they can also harm it right so to not technology isn't neutral so there are some examples i draw on in the book uh, about v taiwan which was this um system that the taiwanese created in order to let citizens engage in this kind of online reddit like policy really where they would put up ideas and then they could upvote or downvote those ideas but they couldn't reply to them. So you couldn't engage in one of these kind of Twitter back and forth. So you just had to put up a new idea of your own. And they actually used this for could you buy alcohol online and how to regulate Uber in Taiwan. Now, okay, that's small bore stuff, but it's also, I think, an effective way of using technology that in a way is like a technological version of the Irish citizens assemblies, right? Where citizens themselves are debating these things back and forth. On the other hand, technology can amplify our differences, right? So we've seen this, I think, already with the kind of echo chambers that we see on Twitter or in Facebook. But let me give you a, that's a polarization example, but a chaos example might be the temptation. And you see this with DeepMind, for example, talking about their AI form of democracy. If we are all a million different people from one day to the next, we will probably have a lot of different preferences that are unique to us that we could kind of feed into a computer and get a computer to help vote for us in decisions. But the problem is that there are fundamental difficulties in democracy of actually aggregating people's preferences at all. And those are, are mathematical problems that the uh, Nobel Prize winning economist Ken Arrow called an impossibility problem. Uh, so what we could end up with is all of us having a bunch of preferences about a million different topics that our computer perfectly represents for us and votes against other computers doing the same. But all that happens is the kind of chaos we saw in the British Parliament in 2019, where no one can decide on everything because you keep rotating round and round and round as different options emerge. That happens, but at the speed of a microprocessor, not at the speed of a member of parliament. So there are ways in which technology could make chaos worse as well as polarisation worse.
1: And isn't that why, really, even though it's perfectly technologically possible now for the entire population to vote on every piece of legislation that might come before our respective parliaments, that just wouldn't work because the representative part of representative democracy is as important. The idea that we elect people to do the negotiation, to do the talking, to make the mistakes and to be accountable to some extent. You know, no AI is going to do that. No, absolutely. I mean, we don't really understand. It's very hard
0: to explain, to interpret decisions that AI makes anyway, right? AI interpretability is a big problem. So you feed all your stuff in and the AI pops out with this set of outcomes. You might think, what the hell? How, that, how did that happen? Yeah, and, 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 why
1: does it, and why does it have six fingers? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. quite, exactly.
0: The, the six-finger problem definitely has a bunch of you know, political versions of it that could emerge where you find yourself voting for very odd outcomes. Um, you know, as I said earlier, parties are chaos cages, right? So representative government does take our quite complex different views that we might have on our different self-interest in lots of domains of life and it crushes them right it flattens them into a package and that can be really frustrating for people and you might feel really unrepresented but the benefit of that is that a set of coherent decisions can be made, right? Because I don't have to make all of my preferences cohere with one another, but somebody who runs the government ultimately has to. Uh, And it also creates um, a set of packages that are comprehensible to people that they can vote on and that they can blame parties for when they don't get right, right? So it creates accountability. It's not really, if, if we had a world where we all fed our preferences into a giant matrix and saw what popped out the other end, it would be very hard to know who to hold responsible if it didn't work out. In a
1: sense, it would be all of us, but we wouldn't know how to punish ourselves. Can I ask you about one of the elements of contemporary politics and contemporary society, to which, which I think your um, your analysis is, is particularly opposite? And it's the way in which, uh, in most Western democratic societies, demographics are changing quite dramatically we have we have aging societies and the question of intergenerational solidarity which has always been part of the kind of the social contract is coming coming under pressure in all kinds of ways we mentioned the you know the the um, the, the protests over over pensions in France and there are other issues of pensions in in other countries arguably climate change um, which is going to affect uh, younger people rather than older is another one or one which is very salient in Ireland because it's extremely controversial it's the top item on the agenda is the lack of access to housing for younger people, generally a sense of a ladder being pulled up by an ageing part of society uh, uh, for which younger people are going to have to pay. Yes.
0: Yeah, so in all of these cases, which are generational issues, but weren't necessarily in the past, but certainly are today, we have the problem that there are short-term costs that are going to be borne by a few quite politically powerful people and most of the benefits tend to be in the long run right so clearly with a pension reform that's going to be the case if pensions become unaffordable as macron claims they are then a bunch of people are definitely going to lose out but the beneficiaries are the french taxpayers in 20 years time so it's hard to to get a great alliance of french taxpayers in 20 years time and make them politically powerful now housing of course is even worse because in most countries including ireland and the united kingdom uh, a majority, normally about 60 to 70% of people own houses and and more of the voting population uh, own houses. Uh, and for all of them, building new houses ultimately reduces the potential value of their house. It might sort of do directly through supply or it might be because to do so, you'd have to have new infrastructure or ruin people's views. And so homeowners are pretty unsupportive of, of building new houses and renters are a minority. right? So not only that, but the benefits of building new houses take the time to build new houses <laughs> to happen, right? And, and houses don't just pop up overnight, right? So you could be telling people, listen, we're going to be digging up all of your roads in the neighbourhood and ruining your view now. And in 10 years time, there'll be a bunch of houses here and house prices will have become slightly more affordable for younger people. You can see how that's a hard political battle to fight. And ultimately, politicians who have a five-year time horizon, normally maximum, right, i.e. when the next election is, they know that those benefits won't accrue until post the next election, but the costs will almost certainly accrue right now. And that's a big political problem for all of us, is getting future us
1: and current us in some kind of agreement. Finally, I should say ben that the book is i, I think it 's fair to say the book is an argument for politics it 's an argument in favor of politics as a as a means of making all all our lives better uh, but as I kind of hinted at the start that 's not the general vibe that's out there at the moment. And you even look at how unpleasant I think it is to be a politician, certainly in Ireland, I think in the UK as well, um, the kind of the level of abuse and vitriol, kind of contempt that that the um, the career politician is subjected to probably has a a negative impact on the people who go into it in the first place. Is politics...
0: Yeah, uh, well, politics is in more trouble than it was 20 or 30 years ago because almost every piece of evidence we have about trust in politics around the world, but certainly in the UK where, where I'm speaking from, is that it's in, in a very long-term decline. Right? So people really do trust politicians less. No one's making that up. And I think social media has led to much more vitriol uh, against politicians. And, you know, I'll note in the United Kingdom, two serving parliamentarians have been murdered uh, you know, since 2016, uh, you know Joe Cox and then David Amos. Um, so it's understandable that politicians, you know, can can be really actually genuinely scared for their life for real reasons. So. But what I would say to people is, look, some politicians are, are, are venal and self-interested and some of the people listening to this podcast are also venal and self-interested because politicians are us. In the same way that referees aren't in you know, football games aren't some kind of magical different species, nor are politicians. Uh, and they share many of the predilections that we do. Of course, the kind of people who select in might be a bit more extroverted uh, or egotistic than others, but ultimately they're people too. And what would we do without them? Because, you know, as you say, the, the plea of the book, despite being called Why Politics Fails and showing why it fails so much, is also that we have to take politics seriously. So you can't wish it away. If, if we all disagree and we can't all be trusted all the time, then we are going to need ways of, of resolving our problems. So we can't magic them away by a leader coming in and saying, look, the elite have been screwing everything up, but you, the people, will get things right. Because the people will disagree. Right? That's, not, we're just going to find a new set of differences and the temptation for that populist leader... Uh, will be to to crush those differences when they have the ability to do so or to pretend they don 't exist and similarly we can 't magic up a, a technological solution to this right so you know we 've seen this in all areas from from cryptocurrency through to Elon trying to get AI bots to kill the other AI bots on twitter it 's really really hard to use technology to deal with the kinds of individual challenges that we saw for example with bank runs with with cryptocurrency rights and everybody's interested to dump the currency if they can that's why we have government backing for our checking accounts and and you know why cryptocurrency didn't not having that became became subject to the same kind of political problems that we're all used to. Uh, And we can't just get rid of disagreement on social media. We will all disagree. This is just the new way that we're disagreeing. And ultimately, that might be why you need people employed by Twitter and Facebook and TikTok and so on to manage that disagreement. So, you know, I make the argument in the book that people sometimes want to squeeze politics out of our society but like toothpaste in a toothpaste tube, it just bubbles up somewhere else in the tube. Or worse, if you don't have the lid on, it just spreads out of the tube and covers everything. Right? So we need we need to manage our political differences. We can't wish them away. Uh, and I hope the book gives people a sense of, you know, yes, why politics fails in the title of the book, but also how we can use it uh, to get to some of those goals that I think most of us share.
1: The book is called Why Politics Fails. It's published by Penguin Viking. Ben Ansel, thanks very much for joining us. And thank you so much for having me here. That's it for today. Thanks very much to our producer, Declan Conlon. Our engineer is JJ Vernon. We'll be back with you very soon indeed. But until then, goodbye and have a great Easter.